0: Welcome for that. Thank me again later. Um, Before we get started this morning, I just want to open up with a word of prayer. Um, So let's go to the Lord right now. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another day that we're able to open up your word. And God, we just thank you for this revelation that you've given to us that we can always look back, look at the scriptures, and see what it is that you're trying to communicate to us. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to maintain a proper perspective in our world, in our lives, that we would hold you as preeminent, that you would be supreme in our life, and that you would reign over all of our perspective of things, that you would um, just be in our hearts, rule our mind, rule our hearts. Father, this morning, I just pray that we would be attentive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So, a couple weeks ago, I came across an article on Yahoo, not exactly my favorite source of news, but it was a front page article and it was talking about a pastor who left the church and was seeking to live for a year without God. He was seeking, in essence, to be atheist for a year. Um, I had talked about this a couple weeks before with Mark and Pastor Ben and Ken Reeder, uh, we had a couple discussions about it because I was just so fascinated and oddly discouraged, obviously, with the, with the idea that a pastor would seek to live for one year without God. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, personally, I've lived without God, or in my mind, without Him, for many years of my life after I was born. That's not something I intend to do again. So to willfully choose that path was very intriguing to me. Uh, the pastor, he was a pastor at a church for many years, and he steps away for a year to be without God. What he found at the end of the year is a conclusion that there is no God, that the concept of a God simply overcomplicates life, and that it's something that's not worth doing because everything else can be explained without the presence of a God, that there's simply no reason for living That we are simply an accident, as people, here to basically do whatever it is that we want to do. There's no real purpose, no reason for anything. Uh, Part of this is a result of his intention to step away from God. When you remove yourself from God, the implications make themselves very present. This man who steps away from the church who was a pastor, again, that's a very important point to me. This isn't just a member of a church who is going through struggles and said, well, I'm going to go away from church for a while and try to find myself. It's a pastor who shepherded and led people stepping away from the faith. Now again, this is a front page article of Yahoo, a very mainstream source of news for anyone that wants to find it. I wasn't looking for this. Chances are I was trying to find something on LeBron James or some kind of sports article, and then this pops up. Well, what is this? He steps away, and now he asserts that there is no God. He is an atheist, partially a result of the friends he probably made within that year. Um, parents, you're always cautious of who your kids are hanging out with, right? My kid, he's 19 months. I'm not too concerned about the friends he's choosing yet, um, but, you know, Maverick is one that I'm saying, maybe not don't do everything Maverick does. <laughs> Maverick's a great kid, love him, but I, my kid needs to be safe. He's not, capable, <laughs> he's not capable of all the things Maverick is quite yet. Um, but I love that dude, that's my little buddy. Um, but you're worried about the company that your children keep because you tend to be much like, you end up like those that you hang out with. You know, old saying with garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you surround yourself with is ultimately what you're going to become. Show me your friends and I'll show you who you're going to be years later. And any of us that have a past that we can look to, we can say, Yeah, that was me. I hung out with a lot of people I shouldn't and I hated who I was then. Interestingly, this man, this pastor who left and is now an atheist, it was an interview in the article and they asked him, so what's it like now living with your wife? Is she still a Christian? That's a point I hadn't thought of initially was, oh, this guy's wife wasn't doing this with him. Interesting first point, they weren't doing this together, it was just him. But number two, he says, yeah, we still get along great, everything is good. Um, She's a very open-minded person. And I'd say that she's a humanist in the way that Jesus was, so we're able to still go um, be pretty similar in our ideas. And to me, that was staggering that someone who was a pastor but who is now atheist is saying that he and his Christian wife, who also qualifies herself as a humanist, they get along just fine because she's an open-minded person. Um, and what we're going to see as we move on a little bit this morning is that the idea of humanism and being a Christian cannot be compatible. They cannot be pushed together because they are complete opposites. You cannot, on one hand, claim to be a humanist and yet also believe that there is a God. Because what we everything in this world today and all the things that your children are learning, and I can say that very confidently because... I'm probably one of those children that are learning. I'm at that age where I'm much closer to what the youth of today are learning than I am to what all the adults, what many of you, have learned in the past. We're in a world in education system where secular humanism is everywhere, that you're simply here by accident. There's no purpose, no reason for anything. Simply be here and enjoy and consume everything that you can while you can because it's going to come to an end. But that's okay, because there is no purpose, so simply enjoy yourself. And the idea of truth is completely done away with. What's true for you may not be true for me, and that's okay. But obviously, as we know, there are many things that are absolutely true, and our simple belief in it does not dictate if something is true or not. When tragedy happens, and someone we know that is sick, our first instinct is to outright deny that that is happening, to deny it and say that can't be true. But does our denial of it mean that that in fact is not true? Nothing has changed except our perspective on it. So this morning, I'm hoping that um, I can show a big picture perspective of how we need to interact with and encounter everything that comes up, that we have a proper perspective of the world there was a pastor of 30 years who gave many lectures at Harvard Divinity School, and he wrote in a book, uh, New Christianity for a New World. The title is very ironic to me. Why do we need a new Christianity? What's changing? Um, the book's done well for 2,000 years. I think it's okay. Um, but this man who was a pastor for so long, he's now writing that um, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, that there simply was no virgin birth, that virgin births only exist in mythology, that in fact he was not necessarily the son of God, and that um, just continuing through the list, anything that you can think of, any of the bedrocks and the foundations of Christianity, he outright denies. A man who again was a pastor for 30 years, gave many lectures at Harvard Divinity School, now coming out and following this secular humanist idea that there's no purpose, there's no reason th- for things, that we need to remove the theistic perspective of God. Um, I'm not sure how you do that, how you remove theology from who God is. Uh, if you do, please help me with that later. I'm not the most intelligent person in this room, but um, again, I just you see these, this constant theme of secular humanism taking over. Why is it that that is the reigning perspective and view in the world today? The answer is very simple. I can be a humanist because that places me at the level of God. Doesn't that sound much more enjoyable, that I can be all-powerful, that I'm the beginning, that I'm the starting point, and that I have the power that God has? Because if there is no God, there's just me. And I like me. You know, uh, My father and I joke all the time, that if we could rule the world, it'd be perfect. Because we'd make the rules and there'd be no one else in it. It'd be us. <laughs> okay? You know, certain times you're like, that does sound pretty nice. But this is the prevailing idea in the world today. It's what's being taught. Science is saying everything's an accident, there's no purpose, that who we are are simply results of accidents. So this morning, I wanted to bring that up at the beginning so that we understand that as Christians, what is our opposition right now? What are we coming up against? The prevailing school of thought is everything from the secular humanist perspective that there is no reason. There is no God. You are, in essence, your own God, and you are the beginning, and you are all that there is. So in light of that perspective in answering those questions of who am I, And why am I here? Questions that, at some point, all of you have asked yourself. Every person asks themselves, at some point, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And the prevailing school of thought today is the result of an accident. You don't really have a reason or a purpose for being. You're just here, so make the best of it. Enjoy it. But when you contrast that with what is true and with what God says, what we're going to see here in Colossians chapter 1, you're going to see a very distinctly different answer to some of those questions. So the text this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Um, I decided that one of the ways I can keep myself hopefully from talking too long is to have fewer verses. Um, It's a nice little way of me doing that. So a little bit of background on this book. Um, This is a letter written by Paul to the Colossian church. Um, The Colossian church was kind of notorious for heresy at this time. Um, And I think it's very important that as we keep within the context of this passage and within this book that we understand that, yes, Paul was writing to the Colossian church, but this could just as easily be written to any of our American churches today Um, to exclude the idea that we could potentially hold some heresy or to think that we could never be a church that would need correction I think would be very faulty and it would be a mistake Um, so Paul is writing to this church in uh, Colossae and there's a couple things that their heresy included one of which was angel worship Uh, that detracted from the uniqueness of who Christ is what they did is they believed that Christ was an angel okay Uh, very different from what the foundations of who Christ is would be in uh, Colossians chapter two verse eighteen. You see Paul um, all throughout this, but in that particular verse, he's uh, refuting the idea of angel worship and him as an angel. There's also a Judaistic ceremonialism where they would place special emphasis on these specific practices um, and uplifting those to a level that they weren't meant for, and then the other being just a false philosophy where the church would deny that Christ was all-sufficient, that he was the Son of God. Again, they they were claiming that he was merely an angel. Um, And as we get through it a little bit, um, we're going to touch on those a little more. But for this morning, I just mainly want to focus on them denying the sufficiency and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Um, Right from the outset, Paul is refuting all of these heresies, but... We already talked a little bit about what secular humanism and what um, kids are learning these days and what is generally accepted all throughout the world and what is being taught. The question of who am I, again, you're merely an accident, okay? Nothing positive or really encouraging about that answer, I would assume. It uh, didn't really uplift me. didn't really make me want to get out of bed. Not something I'm really looking forward to. But in fact, what we see is an answer to this question in verse 15. Who am I? Starting in verse 15, Colossians chapter 1, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Well, that doesn't seem like it answers the question of who am I? Well, if, you're, if I'm trying to figure out who I am, who am I? Why would I start talking about who Christ is? It doesn't seem like it answers the question, but in fact, it answers it more perfectly than any description of me could. If answering the question, who am I, I start rattling off, well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, um, I'm a pastor at a church, and I do all of these things. Yeah, those are things that you do, but that is not where I find my identity. My identity is not found merely in my family or my work. Uh, Men, whenever we meet each other, hi, my name is... My name would be Matt. Okay? Yours might be different. I'm assuming it probably is. Um, but you introduce yourself and then the next question tends to be, or it's immediately after, is what do you do? As if that is what identifies us as men. With women, the response tends to lead to your family. How many kids do you have? What does your husband do? Your identity is found through your husband or through your family. But from here, we're answering, who am I, starts immediately talking about who Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Because in fact, our identity is found in who Christ is and nothing more than that. So that sets up, very importantly, the framework for everything else this morning as my identity is found in Christ. If that is the starting point, everything else will fall into place. When I identify myself with who Christ is, everything else falls into place. Uh, the term image here, image of the invisible God, it means likeness or copy. Christ is the very form of God. He is the embodiment of God in fullness. So when we see this term image, uh, it takes you right back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis chapter 1, God created the world, the heavens and the earth. One twenty-six. let us make man in our image. You see all members of the Godhead creating man in their image. We are likeness. So in answering the question of who am I, we identify with who Christ is. But when you contrast that with what the humanist perspective says and what everything in the world teaches us, saying that you're an accident, that's simply not true because we see that we're identified with who Christ is, the image of the invisible God. I don't care if someone's ever looked at you or told you that you are simply an accident or that you're not worth anything. Because God created you, you inherently have value. There's no accident an almighty and powerful and sovereign God creating you. There's no accident that took place in creation that day. No accident. You have value because you've been created by God. The term firstborn there is also very important because keep in mind throughout this that Paul is refuting the heresy at this church. Um, One that said that Christ was simply an angel. The term firstborn there is not what we would typically uh, believe. I have two older brothers. Okay, I was the youngest, so obviously favorite. Um, But the oldest would typically be referred to as firstborn because he was born first, right? Well, this is actually a different term that's used where this places it in um, emphasis on rank as opposed to order of birth. Again, without doing study, you could quickly see that and go, Okay, firstborn, he was born first. But that's not exactly true because if he were, again, he's refuting this idea of Christ as being created. What we see is that Christ was the creator and therefore not created. And to say firstborn in, or, in chronological order would mean there was something after him. Moving on down to verse 16. It says, For by Him, again this is talking about Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Very important. Um, we see Christ creating everything, but at the end all things were created by Him and for Him. Do we have a perspective that everything in the world was created for him? See, I think it's very easy to say, yeah, he created everything. But that second step of everything that he created was for him. It's for his glory. It's not for ours. So again, you contrast that with secular humanism which says, what, why am I here? What is my purpose? Why am I here on earth? Everybody wants to find purpose in life. Who am I? You're an accident. Why am I here? Just enjoy it. Consume everything that you can. Enjoy your time. Or in fact, we see at the end of verse 16, that he who created all things, everything that he created was for him. Everything that we do in our life needs to be giving God the glory. That is our purpose, to glorify God. Do we do that daily? Do we live with that perspective All things that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. Um, these are different classifications of, um, of angels. So again, you see a, another confrontation of this heresy that, hey, Christ isn't an angel. He created the angels. And that's so significant because even just within this context of um, two verses already, He's listed Christ as the creator, listed him as the um, full embodiment of deity, that he's created the angels. He's not an angel. All of these heresies that were so present at this church at the time, he's just slamming them down saying, yep, angel, no, no, not true. He actually created the angels. And I just love the way that Paul does it because he's so succinct and he's so pointed with everything that he does. Moving on down to verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So we see that God is before all things. He is preeminent. But also, it's by him that all of these things consist. He's over everything. God is completely sovereign, completely in control, completely over everything. So again, contrasting this with uh, what everything else in the world is telling us, well, how can God be over everything? Everything's just kind of an accident. See, the two don't go together. So when we go back to the um, illustration earlier of, well, yeah, my wife and I, we we get along pretty well, and it's very similar because she's a humanist, much in the way that Jesus was. How could Jesus, who is God, support the idea that everything was simply an accident? You see, the two don't go together. And I think it's important that we understand not only that which is true, which we're finding here in Colossians, but also what it is that everything else around us is teaching. Because it does affect our presentation of the gospel. Because if I understand that you believe everything is an accident... Am I not more heavily burdened to share with you how wrong that is and how true all of this is that there's an almighty God sovereign over everything and you just continue with the message of the gospel because everything that the world tells you says it's an accident, that there is no purpose. So not only is Christ the image of invisible God and the creator, but it's also by him that all things consist. God is sovereign over everything. Moving, continuing on down to verse 18, says, and he is the head of the body. Again, talking about Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Again, keep in mind the f- term firstborn there is not necessarily chronological, but in order of rank. Um, he was not, Christ was not the first person to ever raise from the dead, um, So again, it's a very important um, term, very important usage there. The perspective of Christ as being preeminent and above and before all things should definitely impact everything that we do in our lives when we come up against things that we may not necessarily like. Um, A lot of times we deny the things that are true because we don't like the implications of them. Being told that there's an Almighty God that, that I need to glorify over myself, that you know if there's something that I'm recognized for as an accomplishment, that I don't give credit to myself, I, I give glory to God for that. And it's not necessarily my first inclination. It's not the first thing I want to do. I want to say, yeah, I worked really hard to get good at this, you know? But I am not God. I'm not the one who created everything. I'm not the one that did all of these things. I'm merely the creation. I'm not the creator. So do we have that perspective? Think this morning, do I have a perspective that places Christ as preeminent and not myself? Do I view myself as the beginning, as the end, as the only thing that's important? because if I do that's going to come out in your life but if we're placing Christ as the preeminent one the one who is before all things with the perspective of him as the creator that greatly influences everything else that we do in verses 19 and 20 it says for it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell again showing that Christ is the embodiment of God on earth. Again, refuting this heresy that the church held that he was simply an angel, that he wasn't God. In verse 20, "...and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." So we see that Christ is the full image of the invisible God. Uh, later in chapter 2, um, Paul declares that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I love how consistently throughout Scripture you see, um, you see Paul and other writers and everywhere. You just see the image of the Godhead being in complete unity, complete perfection, complete form all altogether. Because there's nothing else that we can relate that to where three distinct parts are all one and they work perfectly together. There's simply no other illustration. There's things that you can come up with um, as far as an egg. Like there's a shell and there's this part and there's a yolk. And I don't know what the second part of the egg is, but some of you do and that's good. But again, it doesn't work. Okay, so that's good. Um, But you see this perfect image of the Godhead working together that in Jesus was the full embodiment of the Godhead. How is it that this is written to them um, in 60 to 62 A.D., um, give or take those couple years, but this is not long after Christ's death? I mean, that's not a lot of time to have passed for people to have forgotten what it is that Jesus did on the earth. Um, Pastor Ben's been going through Christ's ministry and things that he did. Again, this is not long after that time, but yet you already have a church that Paul is saying, I've got to write this letter to them. I need to tell them that things that they're believing are simply wrong. Where did they get the idea that Christ was merely an angel as opposed to being God? How in 60 years has that changed so dramatically? But then we look at, for many of you, you can go back to what you were taught growing up in church and what you learned in schools and the general idea of the world. And then you look at where it is now, whether it's 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years later, and saying, I hardly recognize this place. Everything that I was taught, everything that I knew is completely different. And what's incredible to me is that it always seems like we continue to move further and further away from the truth. That there's not this massive correction back to who God is, back to the things that are true. We're always trying to step further and further away. And why is that? Is it simply because we're just less intellectual than we were before? Or is it, hey, if we can continue to kind of nudge things, I can give myself more power. I can place the emphasis more on me than on who God is. And because of that, everything can be in the way that I want it to be. So Christ is the fullness of deity, but he's also our fullness. In Colossians 1.14, um, right before this, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2.3, In him we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 2, verse 10, we are complete in him. So not only is he the fullness of deity, but that is where we find our fullness. Again, our identity as people is placed in who Christ is not in who we are or what we do. And that's so important. It's so important that we understand that and that we have that perspective. Because if I place all of my worth and my value on what it is that I do and who I am, just simply as a person, I mean, at some point, I'm going to fall short. At some point, Someone will see me, or I will feel like I have less value because I was not successful. Successful by what standard is the question. Is it successful by the standard of me being preeminent or me being supreme? Or is it, am I successful by the standard of the supremacy of who Christ is? You see, we look back at the world and in the history and we see places like Nazi Germany who tried to exterminate the Jews and placed high emphasis on eugenics. And there is a certain type of person that is higher than anyone else. And then we're told, well, don't look down on them. Don't look down on their scientists because within that framework, the secular humanist perspective, they decided as a community what their moral code would be, and they all deemed that acceptable. So that's okay. You can't look down on them because of that. But at some point, something changed. What changed that that was done away with? What has changed in history that removed the idea of slavery being okay? What had to happen for slavery to be done away with? Something changed, and it's not by the standard of people getting back together and saying, Guys, we may have been wrong about that. That doesn't just happen. Because the idea of having anyone, no matter who it is, for some of us, uh, kids doing work for you is fantastic. My dad couldn't wait till I could drive myself somewhere, because he was sick of taking me places. All right. But then, the flip side is, well, now he knows I'm driving by myself. He's worried about me all the time. So he still loses in that. and I think he would have rather driven me and known I was safe than be minorly inconvenienced but the point is with the concept of slavery that was done away with but by what standard it wasn't a collective mind of hey maybe we were wrong about this because the idea of anyone else doing your work for you "Ah, okay I'm okay with that it's nice because I don't have to do it but at some point that changed and again by what standard Someone had to come along and say, hey, this isn't right. These people, whoever it is that's doing this, they have value. They're not simply here to do what you want them to do. They have their own value. They are also created by the same God that you were created by. So what was that standard? It wasn't the standard of the world, but a standard of the supremacy of who Christ is and him being before everything else, before all things, being preeminent. And it's so important that we keep that perspective because if we don't have that perspective it's gonna just completely change the way we view everything else many of our kids uh, when we were at the church in indiana during college uh, it seemed like every couple probably every two months we were doing a lesson on why do bad things happen to good people or simply why do bad things happen it's a question everyone wonders how can bad things happen in this world if there's an almighty, all-powerful God, why do bad things happen? You know, and I would think, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, sure, we'll teach on that. And to look at these kids who, many of them, had been through more abuse, more problems, and more pain and hurt than I've even been through up to this point in my life, and they're 12 years old. I understand the question of, How can these things happen to this awesome 12-year-old kid who's the sweetest person in the world? How can that be allowed to happen if there's an almighty and all-powerful sovereign God? It seems on the surface like a fair question, but we're not asking the question the right way. Because if there's anything that we've seen, is if Christ has the preeminence, if he is supreme We have to flip the question around. Because you see, when we ask the question of how can bad things happen to me? How can bad things happen to other people? Why do these things happen? What we're asking is why doesn't God do the things that I want him to do? See, the question isn't how does God allow these things to happen? The question is if he is preeminent and if he is sovereign and over everything, then if he is supreme, The question has to change. The question has to be, and we have to ask ourselves this and maintain this perspective. If these things are true, how can an all-powerful God know what I did and thought and said yesterday and allow me to wake up and do the things that I want to do today? How can God know the things that I've done in my past, know the things that I'm still going to do? That's the part that gets me the most. How does this sovereign, all-powerful God, all-knowing, know what I'm going to do in the future, or even tomorrow, and the things that I did yesterday, but still allow me to live, still allow me time to be with my wife and my son and my soon-to-be daughter? How does he allow me to enjoy all of these things that I enjoy? If he's all-powerful, how does that happen? See, when we ask the question that way, we're believing in the supremacy of who Christ is as opposed to me being supreme as a person and simply as the creation. You see, the other way, it's, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he bow to my will? You see, a lot of times we, we're easy to accept the idea that God is all-powerful because everything that we read, everything that we see, and even just the worldly concept of a God, a man in the sky, is that he's oh, He's. All-powerful. He can do all things. But you see, we like to stop it there and say, yes, he's all-powerful, and that's all we want him to be. Because if he is only omnipotent and only all-powerful and all-knowing, then I can bend him to my will. I can wield his power, and I can make God do what I want him to do. And if he doesn't, I can be mad with him. I can curse him. I can be angry. But if he's both all-powerful and sovereign, well then as the song uh, we sang for the chorus, we fall down. We have to bow to him. We have to submit to him. We're under his authority as opposed to him being under ours. See, many people reject the idea of God because they look at the world and say, how can there be a God if this world is so messed up? If there's so many things that are wrong, how can there be an all-powerful God? We're simply judging that from the perspective of, I don't like the way God runs things. Like he's a boss that is a horrible manager, that he has all of these resources, but yet doesn't know how to manage them. Or a parent who has tons of awesome and cool kids, but can't really manage his kids. They're running around all the time, like I'm sure mine will be. <laughs> but we try to bend God to our will and we, the way that we believe in Him is simply based off of, well, do I think He's doing an efficient job? Is He doing well? But our belief in if God is doing well does not change the fact that He is all-powerful and that He is sovereign over everything. When we have the perspective that that Christ is preeminent, that everything that we do is based on a supremacy of who Christ is. That changes everything that we do in our lives. That changes your worship. It changes your relationships. It changes your day-to-day things. Um, Think about the job that you picked. Why did you choose that job? Is it because it paid more than another? Is it because, well, I was just really good at it and kind of what I thought I should do um, when I first went to college I had no idea what I was doing there um, don't get me wrong I feel like I belong at a college I think I'm I was capable uh, but I had no clue what direction my life was gonna go in all right uh, but then I also had this grand idea of um, wanting to get married shortly after I started college and the idea of going to my hopeful bride's father and saying, hey, can I marry your daughter? I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my life. I'll figure it out, maybe. Can I take care of her for the rest of her life? It's not really a good sell. (laughs) Okay? I mean, I could have brought along visual aids and things, but I don't know. I don't really know how you sell that. You don't really have anything. It's like, no. No, you cannot marry my daughter, especially the youngest. Um, But going to school, it was... You know, you got to choose a major, so let me choose a couple things I really like. You know, some business and political science. Uh, A semester later that changed. had nothing to do with the things that I'm good at. It was simply, let me just find something to do because I think I can make money doing it. So if I have a business degree, obviously I'm going to make money, okay? Again, I was 17 at the time, far too young to go to college. But that was my whole point of I'm going to go here and try to find something to do. But why did I choose this job? Why is it and when is it that I decided that I was called to be in ministry? Why did I choose ministry? Why do I choose to minister to youth? Of all people in the world, teenagers, (laughs) these ones are different. Um, but think about it. Why is it that you chose your last job? Why is it that you do what you do? Because for me, it, took, it, was, it didn't take until the point of, okay, I, I'm submitting to what it is that God has for my life. I'm not choosing my own direction. I'm choosing to be in ministry because of the supremacy of who Christ is, because he is before all things, and this is what he's asking me to do. And please hear me when I say you do not have to be in any kind of vocational ministry to do what it is that God wants you to do. Okay, a lot of times, whether you go to a Christian school or you're in a church, uh, it seems as if everyone's saying, you have to be a pastor or a missionary. You have to do those things. You don't. Okay, and most of you are going, I agree. Or, yes, I know, the missionary told us that as well. Um, But it changes everything that you do. Why is it that you make your choices? Is it so that I can better myself, so that I can make myself look better? Or is it based on the standard of Christ is before all things. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. He's most important. So ask yourself this morning, is he most important in my life? And if he is, your life will show that. It will dictate all of your decisions. Paul is, again, refuting this, the Colossian heresy about, of who Christ is, trying to correct them, trying to bring them back on track and say, hey, there's some good things going on here, but these things are important enough for Paul to write a letter to the church. Um, I think it's important enough that we take notice of it, too. Within these short few verses, Paul is showing Christ as the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation The creator of all things, the sustainer of everything, the head of the body in the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the fullness of all things, and the reconciler of all things to God. It's crazy to me that God reconciles through Christ things unto himself. That concept was always really hard to me, that through Christ, who is also God, he reconciles us to him but it's so incredible because we see the gospel message here clearly presented at the end of peace being made through the blood of the cross. Why was that necessary? Why are things bad in the world? Well, the answer is simply you. You are why. Mostly you, maybe a little bit of me, but mostly you. Do we have the idea and that perspective that It's because of us that these things had to happen. Again, you see in Romans 1, um, everything this, the wrath of God needing to be, um, this wrath of God on unrighteousness that we display all the time. We see it. We wonder, why are things wrong in the world? It's because we're in the world and we're doing things wrong with it. When it was created, it was good. We messed it up. Okay, Um, My brother could have been an engineer really good at building things he'd build a tower i'd kick it over well that's unfortunate build it again you know he was he made things and it was sound and it was good but i would go in and ruin it do we have the proper perspective that christ is sovereign that he is preeminent that he's before everything else So when we ask the question, when things come up in the world and and we're not necessarily fond of the the implications and we don't like the way things are going, instead of asking why are these things happening, we have to remember we're under grace. We have to remember that grace isn't only extended um, on Judgment Day where we get the privilege of worshiping Christ forever that's great, but daily we're under grace. The question of, how does God know what I did and what I'm going to do and still allow me to live this life? When we ask the question that way, we understand that Christ is first. He's above everything else. So this morning, I would just ask, do we have that concept? Do we have the idea and the perspective of Christ being preeminent in our lives? Because again, others will see that does that dictate everything that you do and it's really easy to say yeah i think it does but try to think of ways that it plays out try to think of what keeps me from giving him the preeminence what are those things and how do i get rid of them Um, so this morning we have to keep that proper perspective but it's so great because there's hope in verse 22 says in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable and unreprovable in his sight. There's that hope that because of the work of Christ because of who he is and things that he's done we have the hope of being presented to God as blameless. And Aren't we thankful for that? Um, let's pray. Father we thank you for this day um, God, we just thank you for your being sovereign over everything. We thank you for your Son. We thank you that He is before all things. That in fact He's the He's the Creator. He's not a creation like we are. God, we thank you that you are so in control of everything in this world that that God, we're not in control. Um, I know whenever we've we've tried to take control, that things tend to go awry and we just thank you that you're over everything that you're all powerful we, we thank you for the grace that you show to each one of us daily that we're so in need of that grace and we, we're just wonderfully blessed that you continue to allow us to live this life that we don't deserve that we've, we deserve death but through your son coming and saving us while we were still sinners that we might be able to have um, the privilege of worshiping you forever in heaven God, I just pray that we would have a perspective of the preeminence of your Son, that he's most important, that he's before all things. And I just pray that that would dictate all of the things that we do in our life, that that would change the way uh, that we would act and respond to situations. And Father, I pray that that would extend to um, just the rest of the world, that we would change this world, that we would be able to in a way, set the temperature, that we'd be able to set the tone as opposed to just passing by. Father, I pray that you would just continue to bless our time today, and we just thank you again for your goodness and your grace. Amen.